Welcome to 2020 and this, the January edition of the Hastings Podcast with me, Stuart Bailey. It's a packed programme this month. We meet a young entrepreneur determined to make his own way in business after navigating his way around Latin America for four months last year. We'll hear about the plans to reopen our library, closed as part of council cutbacks in 2018. We've got the very first interview with Hastings' new MP, Sally Ann Hart, and we'll hear what it's like to have to find your way around Parliament with all its traditions and customs. Then we'll hear from Neil Selman, chairman of the Stables Theatre and Art Gallery, described last year as a gem. The Stables has just celebrated a successful first 60 years, and Neil and his team are determined that the Stables' second 60 years should be no less impressive. That's what we've got coming up in this edition of the Hastings Podcast. First up this month is Dan Robinson, a former pupil of Filsham Valley. Dan and I have known each other since he was about eight, so quite a while ago. Last year he decided to give up the day job and head for Latin America, where he spent four months travelling. Now, back in the UK, he's focused on getting his own business, Thai Supply UK, up and running. A social media influencer, Dan has big plans for the future. Let's talk a little bit about your your wife and social media. Yes. Um, you are quite a big Instagram user. And yeah. your Instagram, is it called an Instagram handle or an Instagram tag? Or I'm too old to understand <laughs> these things. We'll go Instagram handle or tag. Either one works. <laughs> and, and you are Britman? Uh, yes, Britman class. Right. Yeah. So I mean, you are, as you sit opposite me now, you're just a rather dapper young chap. <laughs> but the photographs on, on Britman class... You know, the, the clothes you wear, the clothes you're photographed in, the, the situations you're photographed in, are perhaps not the clothing types that we'd expect a 25-year-old mm. to be seen wearing. So you're trying to do something clearly a bit different. I, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm doing my best. Um, yeah, the... I find that fashion is obviously definitely subjective, and I love people that show individuality with their fashion, and I, I try and do the same myself, like... Um, we've spoken about obviously in previous conversations and catching up and things like I've always done my Instagram because I wanted to show people how I do things like how I dress up and how I style myself and what kind of products I like using whether it's uh, things to improve the lifestyle or things to just dress better in my personal opinion I find that formal dressing is like an extension of of, of me now like I, I'm more than happy to dress casual and dress informal but I always try and do it with a degree of um, appreciation to like the the fit and the style so even if I am wearing simple clothing a pair of jeans I'm making sure they're they're tapered and look nice and whether I'm whether I'm dressing up in a three-piece suit tie pocket square and the the works or if I'm dressing down and wearing a pair of plaid style uh, crop trousers and a t-shirt like I want to make sure that however I'm doing it is deemed as, I don't know, a good impression for young people. I don't know, with style to it, too. Yeah, yes. I want to try and help. And I suppose if you're trying to develop the Britman class brand, I suppose it's what it's becoming, mm. then you need to, to live that as well because you can't be caught off guard. Yes, <laughs> it's exactly it. Um, I try. <laughs> where, where do you see it going? What, what's your ambitions for 
uh, I mean, we do, we talk social media influencers. Is yes. that the kind of direction that you're moving in? I I don't like to call myself an influencer because I think that's a bit egotistical. I mean, I've been referred to as one, and if I do, then in conversation with that person, I'll refer to myself as an influencer. But I just kind of want to build it so, you know, I have a database of people that can trust what I say, and if they have any questions about style, they just need a help with a maybe a new skincare product or something, then I can be offering, you know, that, that support and advice they might not necessarily have from people around them. Uh, I guess a, a fashion it, therapist. <laughs> it, it also strikes me that the style that you project through your photographs, it may be one that other young men feel a little would like to dress that way, mm. but somehow feel it's not the done thing or their mates don't do it. But actually seeing someone of their generation, their age doing it, yeah. may give them the confidence to go out and try a style or try a way of dressing that is, is perhaps they wouldn't otherwise do. I I love that thought. That, that's that's what I'm going for. I agree fully. Like, the whole idea of it is to show people that, look, it doesn't matter how you dress. If you're dressed to the nines every day and showing off a bit of a eccentric self, or if you're unsure about looking so casual because it might be boring, like, why is that a problem? Like, no, dress, dress what makes you feel best. And at the end of the day, I've had some people come to me saying... I had actually, it was quite strange. I had a Chilean guy because I was meant to be popping down to Chile and I was going to, you know, tour about the area. So I mentioned uh, in my stories on Instagram, might be coming down to Chile soon and tag the location. And then I had this follower pop up and said, oh, hey, I'm in Chile. I'm, I actually need a bit of a helping hand. I've been following you since like, I think it was uh, June last year, which is pretty much a couple of months after I started my Instagram. So this is like a year and four months later. And he's like, I'm going to this wedding. And I'm like, oh, I can see where this is going. And he's like, I've got a pinstripe suit, but I don't know what I can put with it. And I'm like, all right, give me 10 minutes. I'm gonna have a little bit of a whirl around for you. And then I just scoured the internet and just sort of said, you know, what, what would look good for what's the sort of wedding? So I asked him the theme of the wedding, asked him the concept, what was going on, what the what the grooms were wearing, the grooms, um, groomsmen. And made sure he wasn't going to clash and things like that, because that's the worst thing. Like a woman's nightmare, for example, if you wear white to a woman's wedding, oh, she's not going to like you for that. But um, but yeah, I got that idea. And then I basically just spent about 20 minutes for him scaring about looking for products that would work together and if he had something similar. And then, bless him, he, um, he put this outfit together and then he's like, I got it all sorted, the wedding's tomorrow. He just dressed up and took a photo and said, what do you think? And I'm like, you nailed it, it's awesome. And he's like, oh, I'm so excited. And then when the wedding happened, he then sent me pictures that he had had with the uh, bride and groom in his suit, like looking all dapperly dressed. And I was like, I done that. I can't <laughs> believe that. Like what? And it was this little, this 24 year old guy that was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, should I? Shouldn't I? What should I do? How should I do it? And I think people can feel a bit lost, especially when it comes to fashion. Like, people were so quick to. Um, make a, a judgment looking at someone and how they how they appear. I feel that if you feel confident in what you're wearing and you haven't had to, I guess, go through everyone's opinion and ask for everyone's opinion, you just know that it works. Like, I mean, in some cases, yeah, I'm, I'm just that kind of, I guess you can say, silent fashion partner that supports them and just says, look, put this together, you can feel comfortable in it, you're going to look great. And then they hold themselves with that kind of level of confidence of feeling and looking great. And suddenly people respond to it because a lot of the time it isn't necessarily about the clothes. But if I know something's going to make someone feel good, they're going to show that off. 
and they're going to feel good in what they're wearing. People can be like, you, you might get the odd few because there's always what we call them on the internet, trolls. But at the end of the day, it's predominantly going to be, oh my God, doesn't he look good in what he's wearing? Doesn't he, doesn't he look like he's standing taller? Doesn't he look like he's holding himself up a lot more confidently? And that's just the goal of what I do. Like if people say, I love what you've worn here, I'm going to try and put something together. And they send me pictures of what they've done. And I'm just like, you know what, you've nailed it. Like, I could not have done it better myself. And did this come from your own experience, your own ideas, or you know, have you worked in fashion in the past? Or, or where, did, where, where did the inspiration, where did the ideas come from? <laughs> it's actually a conglomeration of a few ideas, like the synergy of a few of them coming together. Like I used to do um, like men's suit tailoring for Hugo Boss, their red label in Selfridges. So I had a few little bits of experience there, some very incredible clients. Just going to name drop met Usain Bolt. He was incredible. Michael Owen, he was pretty awesome too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I sort of, that was the initial appreciation of it and how to kind of, how I wanted to style myself um, in, in a formal fashion. And then the idea of Britman class, that was actually, ironically, the brainchild of a very enthusiastic and very passionate ex of mine. And she said, you know what, you'd look really good in suits all the time if you post them on the uh, on the gram. And I'm like, all right, I'll give it a go, see if I can make something of this. Yep. And yeah, fast forward to, um, well, she was absolutely right. That ex was, I hit the nail on the head. I can influence people and I can help them. And it's, it's, it's its own snowball. Like it'll go down as long as you keep pushing and it'll grow and grow as long as you keep trying. Like... It's, it's so, it, it feels so special to have such an influence on people when they haven't even met you. Mm. And I mean, you can make someone's day better or worse just by responding to one of their messages with a, with a helping hand or a question. And uh, it's so powerful, like that the level of, of influence you have on people's lives, people are just messaging you to appreciate what you're doing for them and whether it's indirectly for them or not it's, it's special and it feels incredible like yeah and where do you see it going what are your ambitions for Britman class or, mm. or, or yourself the focus is actually going to be on um well like I said being my own boss um the set I'm actually wearing for you in front of you today with this which people can't see but I'm going to launch my own suit and tie uh, suit and tie set collection. So effectively like ties, pocket squares and things I, I know because I, I like that I can help people with what I'm styling. But you know what? If I can help people with what I'm styling and also provide something that I would wear every day to those people. Because often, you know, it's, it's mismatches. Like I've, I've bought a pocket square from here or a, a tie from here and then... Uh, lapel pin from there I, I want to be able to give people the opportunity if, if they like what I do and I hope they do then they can wear something that I wear myself and I've put it together for them like as a as an idea or a set and will that be available online uh, yeah I'm going to create the website's actually in creation at the moment it's uh, going to be under the tiesupply.co.uk so I'm very excited when that launches to to introduce that to everyone I guess and I, I hope it's received well and at the end of the day it's not there to be uh, the next you know, Tom Ford collection. It's not there to be the next supreme, overly priced stuff. Mm. It's just there if people want it. It's it's something that I do and it's available. 
Yeah, I like that. That sounds really exciting. I'm very excited about it. I can be my own boss, finally. <laughs> Dan, I've really enjoyed talking to you, and um, you've come a long way since that eight-year-old who toddled into judo once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that little, little old me. It, good luck for the future, and hopefully we can have you back on when Thai Supply takes off. Yeah, it'd be, a, it'd be an absolute pleasure. Like, uh, always interesting to have a chat with you, and at the end of the day, it's never a, never a boring conversation, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. You could hear a longer version of that interview that deals with his time in Latin America at the Hastings in Focus SoundCloud channel. And remember, the Hastings podcast and all our other audio content is now available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn and Google. Back in 2018, Oro lost its library as part of a cost-cutting exercise by East Sussex County Council. An initial attempt by Oro Community Association to reopen the facility as a community library came to nothing and wasted a year in the process. In June last year, a new group was formed, Oro Community Library Group. Within months, they had approval from East Sussex County Council to go ahead with their plans. Now, with the reopening of the library expected early this year, we can hear from Juliet Harris about her hopes and the hopes of the group she chairs for how the library will serve its community. We are aiming to be open as soon as we can, but the last thing that we would want to do is commit ourselves to a date and then have everybody disappointed. There have been too many disappointments with the library already, really. So so we uh, watch this space, is what we'd say, and uh, we are busy beavering our way with East Sussex County Council as I speak. It's been an amazing story because I mean, there was all of that wasted time initially and you've, you've managed to tie this up in, what, three, four months? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we it, this is probably the, the answer to my question of why am I so tired all the time. There's a number of us that have worked really hard on this. We, we haven't had a, a huge group of people, but there have been quite a few people that have really pulled out all the stops. We sort of came together in June, like you say. We were initially given a month, so we were given till the end of July to put a bid in. So we asked for more time and we got an extra month. So, uh, so we've put it all together. We put the business case together in about two months, roughly, which has been a bit whistle-stop, like you say. But um, it's a testament to the amazing people I think in the group that have all worked so hard particularly my co-chair Councillor Heather Bishop um, our Secretary Jim Breeds our Treasurer Councillor Andy Batley and uh, everybody that's come together and helped us all out we, we really it's such an inspiring group of people it's, it's been a, a privilege to be involved and How did you become involved? Well, I have been passionate about libraries and learning all my life. Um, Heather Bishop is my partner and uh, so obviously I support her and her work she does as a counsellor and the minute that I knew that they were going to have to pull things together again quickly, uh, Heather asked if I'd like to be involved and it all kind of snowballed from there really. So uh, so it's just, like I say, it's just been fantastic to be involved in, in such a great community project. I'm, a, I'm a, a rare, what Peter Chowney once referred to as a and b I'm a born and bred from Hastings rather than an incomer. So so, uh, not that I have anything against incomers, but um, but yeah. So so I you know I, I used all library when I was younger. I've I've lived in Hastings for most of my life, and I'm so passionate about the town as all of us are that are involved in in all community library group. So given the opportunity to put something together, it's not something I was ever going to turn down really. And I think everybody else in all community library group feels the same. 
And we've seen some photographs of the inside of the library and it looks as if nothing's happened or been done to it since the day the doors were locked. So that must be a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's great. We were we were all very fearful. I, I wasn't able to go on the initial visit, but quite a lot of the group did. Uh, and they were sort of given access by East Sussex County Council. Uh, Rona Drever, who's been extremely helpful, um, showed showed us showed them round. And uh, we were worried that it was going to be, you know, sort of apocalyptic and there was going to be no roof and it would stink of damp and goodness knows what. And actually, it's a bit like the Marie Celeste it's just not been touched it's in it's in pretty good condition by and large and all of the stock crucially is there as well and is in great condition so so again that was a huge relief we were I was expecting us to have to do all sorts of kind of uh, running around at first and actually we're in a we're in a great position to start I think at hastingsinfocus.co.uk we'll keep you right up to date with the latest information about when our library will open its doors to the public once again. Sally Ann Hart didn't become the Conservative Party candidate for Hastings and Rye until after the election campaign had started. But from a standing start, the Rother Councillor went on to win, securing 25,896 votes, giving her a majority over Labour's Peter Chowney of more than 4,000. We spoke to Sally Ann recently about finding her way around during the first days in Westminster and about what she hopes to achieve as MP for Hastings and Rye. Sally Ann, how were those first few days in Parliament? Surreal? Yes, surreal, absolutely surreal. Um, you know, we had the, the, the campaign, um, the election on the Friday, on the Thursday night, sorry, not Friday, and then straight into Parliament on Monday morning. And I have to say, I felt quite detached from the whole thing. You know, you go in there, eight o'clock on Monday morning, I had to be in there to meet Ipsa to get my computer sorted out, the, uh, the laptop, then straight off to induction meetings at 8.15 to learn all about Ipsa, digital services, GDPR rules about everything you can and can't do, a quick rush in procedural stuff. It was so much information, mm. but actually it was really useful. The day-to-day -day life of an MP, and I noticed John Redwood wrote about it recently. Um, have you been there long enough to know what the routine is going to be like? Um, well, it's interesting because I suppose in many ways it's not what I expected in terms of the daily workload. So you're not, although you're sitting in the chamber on a Monday from 2.30 till 10, Tuesdays and Wednesdays from 11.30 till 7 and a Thursday 9.30 till 2.30 in the afternoon, you're not expected to be in the chamber all the time. And I think we've all seen the Parliament channel and the television mm. where it seems to be empty and you're thinking, well, hang on, people are meant to be debating here. But meetings go on all the time. In terms of the business of the day, you are booking in meetings uh, to visit for constituents or uh, to organise something to do with education or something else during the time when Parliament sits because it would be possible to do it all outside yeah. that time. So everything carries on and I think there has to be a degree of flexibility so there might be something that comes up and you have to cancel it. Mm. And I think that's sometimes difficult because it's not always set in stone. There's a lot of meetings so it's about discussing things, there's committee meetings, mm. there's um, smaller group meetings um, about how you progress issues and mm. uh, what do we need to do about you know family law or whatever else you're discussing or mm. want to join in. So when I'm looking at my specific interests for Hastings and Rye, 
you know, there's things like the defense, there's the foreign policy. I'm not interested in anything of that nature mm -hmm. because I want to stick to the priorities that I have and what I feel that people in Hastings and Rye would expect me to focus on, which would be about transport, education, um, the judicial um, aspect, um, police, um, trans uh, fishermen, all that sort of thing. So that's where I'm going to be focusing my special interest groups in uh, uh, and committees and all that sort of thing on, on the issues that actually apply to Hastings and Rye. Um, just final question on parliamentary procedure. There's been quite a bit made in the last 24 hours or so as, as the, the year has been laid out. Um, and you know, critics are saying you know, MPs are going to have an extra 20 days holiday because Parliament's not sitting. But because Parliament's not sitting, it doesn't mean an MP isn't working. Absolutely it? not. I mean, you know, the long, the more time you can spend in your constituency, the better. So you have to sit in part. You have to go up to Parliament Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in your constituency. But if you're not sitting for 20 days, it gives you more time mm -hmm. in your constituency to deal with casework, make visits, go and visit schools. So actually, the fact that we're not sitting for for 20 days is means that I get more time in my constituency. And again, from some of what you were saying during the election campaign, being able to spend more time in the constituency, I suspect, is something you welcome. Absolutely, because this is who I'm working for. So the more I find out about what's going on in my constituency, the more I can help people in my constituency. And going back to the campaign, was the nature of the way the campaign developed, because it got a bit nasty and a bit dirty. In did, the last did, week, yes. yes. Did, did that come as a shock? Um, a, a little bit. I suppose I wasn't really prepared for the nature of the allegations, because mm. that was quite shocking yep. um, and, and really not true at all. So that was quite shocking. Um, but it made me think that, uh, actually, if we allow people to try and bully and intimidate, it will stop good people coming forward to go into mm. politics, and particularly women. I feel very strongly that there are so many people who've got a lot to offer. And in the political scene, whether it's at local level or national level, and if we allow that sort of intimidatory type activism to dominate, it will stop good people coming forward. So um, I'm determined that um, it won't um, rule the day. In terms of your own motivations to embark in a political career. I mean, what, 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 obviously initially as a councillor, but what motivated you to get involved in that kind of level? At that level, well, it was actually working in Hastings as a magistrate, um, particularly in the family courts, witnessing the erosion of the of family life, children being removed from the care of their parents due to whether it was um, drug abuse or um, alcohol, substance misuse, neglect for the children. And I thought we really need to focus on um, getting it right for children and families, so early intervention and prevention measures so that we're not ending up um, further down the line taking children into foster care. And unfortunately, the, 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 the percentage of children who've been in foster care that go on to, com to, to commit crime is quite high. So if we get it right much earlier, we could be saving so much, not just economically, but um, socially as well. So for me, it was about realising that if I want to change the law, rather than administer it, I would have to actually take that step into national politics. And that's why I did it. 
any particular political heroes that have shaped your... Well, I have to say, I've always been a huge fan of Disraeli because he was massively into social justice and social reform. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in one-nation conservatism. So it's not just about our union, about Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales and England. It's about the whole, you know, you've got your um, social reform, you've got your social structure, giving people opportunities, but also spending on the public services, having that safety net for people who can't help themselves. And, uh, and Disraeli really was the first person as a conservative to really look at that sort of social justice. Do you have ambitions for the, for the top of government? Or um, you see your well, when I look at the Prime Minister, I'm thinking, my goodness, who would want to do that job? <laughs> no, my ambitions are to be the best MP Hastings and Rye has ever had, that I work really hard for my constituents and I can make huge improvements for them. And that, to me, is a fantastic ambition and that's what my ambition is. I've been sort of thinking about my maiden speech um, for um, to do in the next month or so. And I've looked back at, at the maiden speeches from, for Amber Rudd, um, for Michael Foster, for Jackie Lay and for Ken Warren, who became, he did his maiden speech in 1972. I was four years old in 1972, therefore I've told everyone my age. But they all talk about the necessity of improvements to the A21 as being the only way that Hastings can economically um, grow. And 50 years later, I will be asking for exactly the same thing. And that's something I'm going to really focus on in my maiden speech, because clearly for the last nearly 50 years, that's been the topic of conversation mm. for every MP, and it still hasn't happened for us. So yeah. we've really got to focus on that, which is why when the government talks about investment in transport infrastructure, and they want to level up the country, and they're talking about more investment in the north, I will be saying, hang on a second, we need investment in the southeast as well, because this is absolutely necessary for Hastings to economically grow, is to have that improvement to the transport infrastructure. Um, and we don't want to miss out on that funding. Yeah. And it's certainly something your you Labour opponent, Peter Chowney, made quite a lot of, is you know, the difficulty of developing Hastings economically yeah. when the transport links here are so poor. I know, and when you're looking at you know, the best model for um, growing an economy in a town is you, you have to develop that transport infrastructure platform. So that is road, rail, broadband, digital services. That's your um, infrastructure platform. But also tied into that is the education. So you want a really good skilled educate, um, skilled population locally. Mm. And that's not just about academics. It's also about technical education. It's about a skilled population. It's about a healthy population. So we want to make sure that we've got the investment in our local health service because um, as Churchill once said, a great, and the nation's greatest asset is a healthy population. Well, I would add to that that it's a healthy, educated population. There's a full version of that interview available on the Hastings & Focus YouTube channel. In March last year, the town's then MP, Amber Rudd, described the Stables Theatre as a gem. 2019 saw the Theatre and Art Gallery celebrate its 60th anniversary, marking the occasion with a string of special events throughout the year. The Stables also got a new chairman last year, and that's Neil Selman, who chatted to us towards the end of 2019. 
reflecting on the anniversary celebrations and looking to the future with a significant degree of excitement. Neil, 60 years is a big achievement. It's a huge achievement for an amateur theatre uh, run totally by volunteers. Yeah, an amazing achievement. I think it's a huge feather in the cap to everybody that's been part of the story to date. Um, uh, and I think for, uh, from my point of view, it's, it's looking at how we make the next 60 years as successful. The 60th anniversary year itself, any particular highlights in that for you? Yeah, um, yes, I, I, it's been sort of, for me, it's sort of been a huge learning curve and, and, and full of highlights. We've had garner evenings, um, we've had uh, celebratory meals, um, we've had celebratory church services, um, but I think probably the, 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 the really big thing for me is the inroads we've made into the local community. Um, this year happened much quicker uh, than I was expecting it to to happen. Uh, just things like doing the pram race, joining in with pride, um, sort of opening ourselves up to charity work, which we really haven't done as a theatre. Um, Putting yourself at the heart of the community, really. Hopefully, yes. The inroads we've made this year look like they're they're setting out roots for next year. It's, I think one of the things that surprised me over the year, and, and, and this includes me, is the number of people in Hastings who know about the stables, they drive past it on a regular basis, but they'll say, oh, I've never been in there. That's something to overcome. That is an, a massive challenge we've got um, to overcome. I, d I don't know whether it's the, uh, the history of the theatre that we have been a club theatre, that you had to become a member and things like you had to be a member 24 hours before you could buy drinks, 24 hours before you could buy uh, theatre tickets, um, you had to be proposed um, by members of the theatre, you had to be signed in by members of the theatre, so all those sort of things close you down. Mm. Um, and I think so probably back in the, the 50s and 60s, um, you know, being a member of a club, it, it was a lot more acceptable. Mm. You know, you became, you were a member of the golf club, you were a member of the tennis club. Um, now things are so sort of like transient that, that, that you have, we have to, as a theatre, be open to everybody. And what, uh, what I think we need to do is, is provide um, sort of plays, theatre, entertainment, for different areas of society and different areas of our community um, that make different people come to see different things. And if there's a spin-off that people see, oh right, okay, well there's Treasure Island on, we'll, we'll bring the kids to see that. People go and see the show that they like to see. Just looking at what you've been putting on in the last year, it's a hugely diverse range of, of, of material and performances. The uh, 60th anniversary season was very much um, set before I became um, chairman. The idea was that we took plays from our, the six decades um, that, we, uh, that, that we've been running. Um, next year is, is slightly different. Um, every play that is on next year has been uh, suggested by either a member of the theatre um, or a director from, from the theatre. We've actually cut down the number of plays that we're doing next year as well. Um, it was very sort of hickledy-pickledy the way the, the, the theatre was scheduled um, and the shows were scheduled so we've, we've made it uh, 
uh, a very clean schedule next year, um, take a notice of sort of like the technical group. Um, so we've got, we, you know, we've got time for builds and we've got time for technical, we've got time for lighting, uh, we've got time for dress rehearsals. I know that all sounds a little bit obvious, but when, you, when you're planning a programme and all of a sudden somebody says, oh, can I just have a black box to do something on a Saturday night? You sort of go, oh, yeah, that's fine because there's nothing in for a week after. But if you're halfway through a build and you've got all the lights down, it's very disruptive. Um, and I didn't realise how disruptive mm. that can be. So what we've done is we've, we've planned the schedule next year that there are, there are no interruptions in our builds and that we have, um, we have sort of like ring fenced areas for black box productions. Um, and we can, then, we can then book those in quite clearly. So if somebody comes to me and says, you know, I'd like to do a show at the stables, I can say, we've got these dates. Mm. And it's allowed us to do other things like new writing. Um, so we've got new, uh, we've got a new writing festival uh, next year. We've got four plays. We had, we had nearly forty submissions, and from that we've we've honed it down to four plays. And those four plays have got a two-week slot where they'll have um, a tech and a dress rehearsal, and then two performances. The idea is that the stables will support them as much as possible. So. You know, hopefully, if they want to rehearse during the day, they can rehearse during the day. Um, they can use our wardrobe. Um, they can't take costumes away, but if there's anything in the wardrobe they want to use, they can sort of put those by. They can use our props. They will bring in a set if they need to. We'll supply them with technicians, um, and they get a they get a two night sort of performance of their play, um, and that's on the understanding that um, they they do a Q and A afterwards. It will be something slightly different for the Stables Theatre audience because they will be asked to input and have a feedback on plays that are, are sort of in, in development. So people can give their, their opinions on um, something slightly different. Because for new writers to actually be able to stage the play in front of the public must be very difficult in normal circumstances without uh, yeah, something like this. Yeah, I, um, I, I was actually quite I was actually quite shocked. What we've done is we've put a, a, a season a season of four plays together, which I think would suit a stables audience. They are different subjects. They are not hugely out on a limb, so I think the stables audience will enjoy them. There's a there's a meeting of Margaret Thatcher and John Lennon in one of them. There's an Edwardian woman who um, is part of the Flat Earth Society and cons all her uh, parishioners through a seance to give her money to buy bits of Madagascar. Sounds um, fascinating. Yeah, they're they're good. We've got um, we've got uh, a play called Happenings by a chap from Eastbourne called John Berry, um, and then we've got the other man which is which is based on the Graham Greene novel so they're they're all good you know they're all recognizable stories um, I think what what fascinated me is when I started talking to the people um, and we said you know we can offer you this we can offer you this we can offer you this um, and they're saying oh right yeah well so so how much is it going to cost us and I said well, well I think I might, have, <laughs> I might have missed a trick here. Um, but no, the idea is the stables are, are supporting you. So what, basically what we'll do is we'll do a 50-50 split on your ticket sales. Mm. And they said, what, so we haven't got to pay for the theatre? So I said, no. And one chap said, well, you know, I've, I've won a competition before and we were able to use the theatre, but they charged us to use the theatre. Mm. So I couldn't, although I won the competition, I couldn't put the play on. Mm. Hopefully that 
it will be good for them, it will be good for the theatre. If any of the plays sort of like take off, hopefully they'll remember where they started. started. <laughs> that, you know, that is that. No, but it's not the idea, but I, I think as long as it's a balanced programme, we can take risks and we can make the theatre work as a community theatre rather than trying to be anything sort of too big, too pretentious. You know, we, we can make it a hub. That's, that's what I really want to do. Like, the, the heritage of, of theatre fascinates me. The, the, the story and how it was set up by local people. But, you know, I'm sitting here looking at the Gwen Watford Gallery. And for people of my generation, Gwen Watford was a, was a big TV star mm. at the time. And there's the board downstairs that lists the famous names who've trod the boards here. So a lot of heritage, a lot of background. And, and bringing on the next generation is... You know, next step in, in that process really yeah yeah i you know we we did a we did a play here um this year uh, it was a it was a play reading which we're doing a full production of next year um here at last is love um and one of the characters isn't that is desmond carrington and the amount of people that have gone through and said oh desmond carrington was here um <laughs> and i i knew that it it hadn't really sort of like twanged mm. but it does you know it does prove that people actually read our boards. Mm. Uh, Dean McKeon um, came to one of our gala evenings. Barbara Flynn is a huge uh, supporter of, of the theatre. Uh, and Amanda Burton came to the, to the play reading. Mm. Um, that was more luck than judgment, but um, yeah. she, you know, she saw us running up the high street with some stalls and said, where are they going? And we invited her and she came. As far as you're concerned, I mean, to, to be chairman of an organisation like this with with the background, the heritage, and, and all of that. You, know, you obviously have a, a deep love and a deep passion for theatre and performance. Where, where did that come from? Um, I don't really know. <laughs> I don't really know. I know um, my, my, my granddad, my paternal granddad, uh, was a pianist. Um, he also worked for the water board, but he, he did used to play the piano. And my, my maternal Grandma uh, was a very keen theatre um, goer, so so she used to take me to a lot of things. I enjoy live theatre. I'm not I'm not a cinema person. I would much prefer to see a performance that is unique um, for whatever reasons. I I, I like live theatre. You know, I've never really been anybody that's lacked in confidence, but actually to be able to stand and talk and chat to people um, in theatre you don't have to be the lead in everything you can get your confidence and you can you can find your way in life and it, and it, and it's just a it, it just supplies you with really good tools about being confident and talking to people and communication and listening um, and yeah that's that's probably my take on theatre. It, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be the lead, you don't have to be putting on a, a, a fantastic production, but it, 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 is, a, it is a community mm. um, uh, and it's a sort of a group of friends. Um, the, yeah. true, the, the true definition of an ensemble performance. Right? Yeah, yeah. But your, first, your stage debut was, was something that came around rather by accident. Hugely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, as I said, it was um, one of the uh, policemen in Pirates of Penzance, and I think it was purely um, at 16 I was 
six foot three and <laughs> could fit the costume, probably. I think that's more than likely because I'm not sure I was a fantastic singer. I'm not sure I'm a fantastic singer. Um, but um, yeah, that was it. Was it was complete luck because my my whole family are sportsmen, mm. so there was no theatre mm. at all. So it was cricket in the summer, football in the winter. Um, I was allowed to play rugby and hockey sometimes, but it was cricket and football. And did that, from that first accidental performance, how did, how did your, your performing career, how did your on-stage career, career progress from there? Quite tentatively. It was always chorus. Um, I think the first, the first um, part in a musical I had was um, Big Julian, uh, Guys and Dolls, um, which I didn't have to sing in. I then went on. This um, is a theme. The, sing- the singing is a theme here. <laughs> yeah, I then. Well, yeah, it gets the singing gets better. I tell you, because the next the next uh, show we did was funny thing happened on way to the forum, mm. and there's a character in that who is called Miles Gloriosus, um, and he is like the centurion, and he comes on. I think it's about two thirds into the first mm. half. And he hasn't been on the stage before, but he comes on singing a song. Well, the first time I came on singing a song, I hummed the whole lot. <laughs> and that was at the White Rock. And I, but, uh, yeah, so, um, so yeah, singing has always been a little bit of a... I'm not An sure issue. I, yeah, yeah, it has been. But then, um, since then, I, you know, I, th- I think I sort of found my confidence a little bit. And, and I've done Guys and Dolls several times. I've done a, a musical called You're in Town. I've done Chess. Um, I played the King and the King and I a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think I, I think I finally got over that. But that has that. You know, I'm not uh, I'm not a singer. Singer. My my big passion is um, Sondheim. So mm-hmm. it's it's yeah, it's more of actors. Yes, singing. So. And administration, theatre administration. That is not a logical progression, but... No, no bit of a baptism of fire, I would say. Um, Again, but then having, uh, you know, my background being in in social care and providing people with care plans, I know it's, you'd probably think, what what on earth is he on about? But actually having a framework to work within, but then making each... Uh, care plan specific to the individual I very much look at that for each show mm. so we have a framework to work within you know there are different different rules about coming in uh, we we have contracts and we have set bits to the contract um, but then we sit down with the people that are coming in and say right actually so within that framework what do you need you don't need sound right okay if you don't need sound then we can probably give you a bit more time on lighting when you're thinking of booking in a show you've got to think of box office, bar, backstage, technical, mm-hmm. because if you change, the, if you change the, the, the price of the show or you change the start time of the show, you don't realise, you know, you think, oh yeah, 7.45 or, you know, it's starting at 7 o'clock and you've got a, a team of volunteers that are used to starting at half past 7. You know, you just think, oh, it's only half an hour, but it's, mm. it's a... It's a big thing when you're asking, you know, when you're, if, if you're employing somebody, you can say, oh, can you be here half an hour earlier? When you're asking volunteers, it creates them huge amounts of problems. So if we can work within parameters that make it work for everybody, um, then 
yeah. that's what you you sort of have to do so yeah. as I said if you've got a framework you've got a starting point um, and then you you knock the framework around to be able to make it fit but you know if you're working within that framework everybody's going to be told you know, the information that they need to you touch on the volunteer nature of, of the stables I mean that again is a huge part of its heritage and tradition yeah. it is a fully volunteer run led operated enterprise we we do hold it up with a, a like a huge banner that we are volunteer uh, run we do run it. it it is run with volunteers there are certain uh, jobs within within the theater that have a paid element too um, but they tend to be more sort of expenses mm. things um, we this year we hosted the little theater the regional little theater guild conference um, but the little theater guild each year have um, uh, a topic that they want to discuss which is a national um, question we had a whole list of uh, topics they wanted to bring up and one of them this year was about paid employment within an amateur uh, of a volunteer run theatre. We even had a debate about whether we were going to let them do it because <laughs> people were so, no, we don't want to even discuss it. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, we do need to discuss it because things are, things are changing. And the discussion we had within the Little Theatre Guild Conference is, 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 is really interesting because if you have a group of people that are good at their job and can support the theatre, and you can see they're getting to the point where you are pushing them to their absolute limit. If you could, if there was any possibility of paying them for 10 hours a week where it took the pressure off, that seems ideal. At the moment, we're, we're working really well with volunteers. And it's by definition, volunteers are there because they want to be. Exactly, exactly, yeah. yeah. But, Neil, thanks for chatting to me. That's right. Um, and um, good luck setting the stables on train for the yeah. next 60 yes. years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. yes. It's a challenge. It is a challenge. Yeah, it is. I'm sure the stables will still be here in, in 60 years. Mm. I'm not sure I will be. Um, but it's, uh, you know, the, the, the group of people we've got working down here are a fantastic group. You know, the amount of time that people put in... And if you asked for that in a paid job, I'm not sure you'd get the commitment. Well, that's it for this edition. We hope you've enjoyed it and hope you'll keep an eye on the Hastings & Focus website, YouTube and SoundCloud channels and on our social media, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Hastings & Focus and we'll keep you up to date with all the latest goings on. My name's Stuart Bailey and you've been listening to the Hastings Podcast. The Hastings Podcast is a Hastings and Focus production.